Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the February 6th, 2024 edition of Ask a Leader. Yesterday, vote-by-mail ballot began California. February 20th is the last day to register to vote, although you, if you really blew that little deadline, you can register on Election Day, March 5th. That always has to be said for all you like latecomers. February 24th is you can select amongst your 183 vote centers, including 37 that are open for 11 days, 146 open for four days, and 25 with a drive-through ballot drop-off. Oh, I remember that during COVID. That was so cool to watch work. The registrar voters will be open for the entire voting period. Information is available, ladies and gentlemen, all over California, well, all over Orange County, at the website ocvote.gov. Lots of stuff in there. And in the service of that effort is Ask a Leader's coverage of the primary. We'll start today with State Senator Josh Newman from District 29. He's running for re-election in the newly mapped 37th State Senate District, inside which Radio KUCI is located. In the second segment, we'll hear from California's 47th Congressional District candidate, Joanna Weiss. We're going to just have this brief of briefest interludes. And we're going to start right now with Mr. Newman. My first guest is California State Senator Josh Newman, serving in what has been known as the 29th District, but now he's running in the newly mapped 37th District since the redistricting was completed after the last state Senate election in 2020. I take care of the details. You just follow me, folks. You just make sure you're looking at your ballot. I'm just giving context, and then you don't pass the quiz. You just you just vote. So this district, the 37th, the California State Senate District, is including Al- Aliso Viejo, Anaheim, Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, Irvine, Laguna Beach, Laguna Niguel, Laguna Woods, Lake Forest, Mission Viejo, Mojesca, Newport Beach, North Tustin, Orange, Santa Ana, Silverado, Tustin, and Villa Park. Senator Newman served his first term as state senator from December 2016 to June 2018, then was recalled, presumably due to his vote supporting a gas tax. He then was reelected November 2020. He currently serves as chair of the Education Committee and serves on the Budget and Fiscal Review, the subcommittees dealing with corrections, public safety, judiciary, labor, and transportation. That is a lot. Joint Committee on Rules, Select Committee on Hydrogen Energy and Mental Health and Addiction, and is a member of the Jewish, the Mental Health, and the Problem Solvers Caucuses. He was the founding executive director of the Armed Force to Workforce Strategic Advisor to various companies, the Vice President of Business Development at Send Me Inc., Senior Vice President at Limbo Inc., Vice President B2B Mobiles, Mobiles Inc., and Director of Strategic Development at Real Networks. Previous to that, he served as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army. Senator Newman completed his Bachelor's of Arts in History at Yale University and studies at the University of Queensland, St. Lucia, Queensland, Australia. His volunteer work's been with the California Democratic Party, Orange County, court-appointed special advocate for child in the foster care system, Orange County Veterans and Military Families Cooperative, and with Neighbors United for Fullerton. He comes to us 
ladies and gentlemen, live from Sacramento, where laws are being discussed and made and unmade. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Josh, Senator Josh Newman. Thank you, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. I've been wanting to interview you so many years, and it, it took a re-election bid to make this all work, but we're making it work. So with a very full roster of policies that I want to ask you about, I'm pretty adamant that we mm-hmm. avoid the stump speech and speak directly to the policies. I'm only covering housing, transportation, local government, ethics, Orange County, Board of Education, expansion. I hope we can get to elder fraud protection. It's a, there's a bill moving through at a bridge pace. We might get to some of the, uh, the UC lecture, at Cal State lecture sort of formula, but I'm not sure we can get it all in. But So let's start with housing. Would you okay. lay out how you think the state is best advised to grapple with this yawning and complicated need, what demographic are you most concerned about? And veterans, I don't think people fully realize, veterans are are less, when they're less than honorably discharged, they're released before their guaranteed full benefits. It's a bit of a pipeline to eventual Mm -hmm. sort of homelessness. So there's a lot of moving parts to housing. Which parts are you seizing on? You think the state is best positioned to address and manage and i'm solve is like really pie in the sky but so take that mouthful please and help easy little question right um so so housing is is you know perhaps uh one of the major crises facing california in addition to mental health and homelessness um and what we have in california is we have a a a severe lack uh, of affordable housing market rate housing um and uh, imperative of the legislature is to kind of right-size our policies uh, to increase the uh, speed at which housing is created. So to do that, um, we need to make a bunch of reforms uh, to some of the uh, legislative sort of legacy legislation that makes it uh, not only difficult but expensive to build housing in California. Um, And we we also need to figure out uh, how to direct monies into the right kinds of housing, and part of that uh, will be um, land use reform. Uh, many, m- many people don't realize this, but uh, lots of communities have prohibitions against housing that is smaller than a certain size. Uh, and when you look at how expensive housing has gotten in California, to make uh, housing accessible uh, for early you know, sort of young adults, uh, working families, we need to have housing that, that comes in at well below uh, what we've got right now in Orange County, the median home price in Orange County is give or take a million dollars. Uh, and there really aren't many people who don't already own homes who can afford that kind of investment. And that is that is sort of, we're calling it now, it's sort of legacy housing. If you're not already in, there is a, a sort of a class of home ownership. But uh, is there, a, now about the, the veterans housing, uh, people I don't think understand, and I think with all the work you've done for veterans, mm-hmm. and that... Uh, is there it's a there's a it's the federal provisions for what the state or what the Department of Defense does what's their policy for releasing people who have served in the military but is there is there something you're watching and saying hey I'm a veteran I'm a state legislator and Department of Defense we can't keep letting this we can't open up this gap of veterans being unhoused so so there's actually it's it's it's, it's interesting and kind of uh, you know, really concerning. So there's there's kind of two generations 
of veterans that are really vulnerable to homelessness. One is the older cohort. That's sort of your, your Vietnam era veterans. Uh, and they have a bunch of, uh, you know, sort of unsolved issues that uh, often lead them to be really challenged uh, to the point of being, uh, you know, either housing insecure or homeless. Uh, and then there's the, the younger cohort. Uh, and these are young vets who come home uh, typically from service elsewhere to California uh, and, and, you know, get really swamped very quickly. This is a very high cost of living state. Um, and the policies over the last, say, 15 years um, weren't particularly good at matching those young vets up to resources to include employment. So that's, you know, that's, as you mentioned, that's something I was working on before I got elected. Uh, we have made some progress, I think, uh, on both cohorts, especially um, given kind of uh, increased federal support. Uh, but, you know, if, if you agree, I think as most of us do, that anybody who serves our country uh, in a time of need is, is well-deserving uh, of the resources to move on uh, in their lives to include having access to comfortable housing. We need, we need to do better, uh, and that is no simple thing, right, given all the different jurisdictions uh, that have purview over uh, veterans uh, and affect things like housing. You're in a special position to make yourself heard in where there might be certain niches uh, that are opening up and offering possibilities, though. No, I appreciate that. So, so I, I've carried some legislation that makes it easier for vets to both secure home loans but also to refinance their existing home loans. Uh, but that, that is, you know, a small share mm -hmm. of, you know, the larger veteran population. California has, has unsurprisingly, the largest number of vets uh, in the country, my largest state in the country. Uh, and so, so the real issue, um, as, as I've kind of assessed it, is, is we, uh, for the older vets, we lose touch with them uh, until they're really challenged. Uh, but the younger vets, same thing, right, which is they, they leave the service, they come home, um, and uh, we, we lose touch with them as well. And so if we're really serious uh, about making good on you know, that sort of uh, sentiment of thank you for your service, we would have a much more proactive approach uh, as these young men and women come home uh, and start their civilian lives, either moving into education or, or into the employment market. So they don't wind up underwater uh, for, you know, it's you know, such a high cost of living state, you know, and, and when you consider, you know, these are typically, you know, people coming home with new families, uh, all the kind of stresses and obligations that come with that. It's really important to get them situated quickly. On your, in your campaign stump and on your literature, that com to combat climate change, and I'm quoting it, by building green energy infrastructure and ensure cleaner air for every community. And so I think that there's a very intersectional piece to how we're committing funds and committing the into the long term the, the, the transportation infrastructure that have a huge effect on climate. And I... I'm thinking of two different projects that one of them that it just infuriates me. I just I've been I even think I've tweeted this this week uh, mm. that that we saw the high occupancy vehicle, the carpool lanes, two were added in each direction on the I-405. And now mm -hmm. there's this scrimmage with the expansion, a proposed expansion of the Interstate 15. And those are huge commitments that, to me, are so retrospective. They're so antiquated. And yet, that's what leadership is committing 
our whole population to. So I want, and the I-15, Interstate 15 is not a fait accompli. It was in yesterday's, over the last couple of days, there, uh, there's a scrimmage there, as I was referring to it. The, the mm-hmm. California Transportation Commission is trying to sort of slow it down, like, wait a minute. We do have some environmental consequences to adding these lanes. And it, there's a whole sort of cascading effect of this is this is the uh, the traffic flow to from the ports to more of the 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 inventories uh, in the inner uh, inland empire so i i want to know are you willing to raise your profile up to offer leadership to to call out these are antiquated solutions the i405 is is almost already maxing out it was not much relief and it's more cars combusting up and down in the northern portion of Orange County. Yeah, I, you know, I appreciate that, right? So, so you know, with respect to combusting, one of the sort of larger at scale initiatives in California is to make the transition to zero emission vehicles, uh, and we're making some progress. About twenty five percent of cars sold in California last year were either, were either electric uh, or fuel cell hydrogen vehicles. Um, I drive a, a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, which which produces nothing but water out of the tailpipe. Uh, but we have to match that curve, you know, the, the adoption curve for these uh, new zero emission vehicles with the other investments, as you mentioned, uh, in our transportation infrastructure. And as we do that, we have to make parallel investments with public transit. And, and this is a real challenge uh, in a geographically sort of expansive area like Orange County moving into the Inland Empire. Uh, and where we start is, and it comes back to housing, uh, you know, folks who, who live in the Inland Empire, they live there because they can afford housing, but typically their employment is far away. Uh, and we need, over time, to figure out how to solve for that problem as well, uh, to reduce the number of cars on the road, uh, and especially the number of internal combustion engines on the road. So none of this is, is easy at all, and it gets harder uh, in the current fiscal climate in Sacramento, where we're looking at a fairly substantial deficit for the last several years we've had lots uh lots by way of surplus monies and we've made you know some decent investments on on in zero emission technology uh and and public transit uh but this this gets a lot harder in a constrained fiscal situation uh the federal government uh, through the you know the uh, inflation reduction act and the and the IIJA has has allocated lots of money and so it's really important that California secure as much of that as possible uh, and that Orange County uh, in San Bernardino, the you know, sort of local transit agencies do the same. Though there, uh, there, the Niskanen Center pushed out. Well, it's actually it wasn't that recent. It was last summer, but they're resubmitting that for us to view in the media. Is that they're looking at the kind of rail corridors? It's really not a, a, pros, a possibility here in. Uh, we don't have these kind of abandoned corridors quite the way they are built out in the east that can be reclaimed, that can address the, all the factors, the congestion, because uh, you know, if we have uh, electric vehicles, we, they're not combusting, but they're still congestion and they're still mm-hmm. long commutes. So the Niskanen Center, I'm going to put that up as a, a link to that in the podcast summary for people to think about. It's, a, it's an amazing thought piece. But another thing that the article raised was the sort of the culture of, you know, the voters are out in front and they're saying, heck no, leave our freeways alone. We just want to keep adding freeway spaces. And that's why I'm in a position of asking a California leader to address 
what are you willing? What kind of political capital can you lead and re reassess what's this political culture that's uh, that's just adding more and more longer and longer commutes with more and more vehicles? What what kind of leadership are you poised to offer to redirect us from these retrospective kinds of solutions? Right, and and, and you know your point is well taken. So. To, to my mind, it's a, it's a matter of balance, right? So we have to kind of meet our, our current needs to maintain throughput on, on traffic, and, you know, that's important for the economy. But longer term, we have to figure out how to rebalance uh, commuter paths uh, and the, mo- the modes of transit. And so um, in Orange County, there are actually, there are actually still quite a few rights-of-way left over from kind of the old days. Um, but the investments necessary to, you know, to convert them back to public transit are fairly substantial. Uh, and so that is a question to your point of vision and leadership, um, and I'm happy to be a part of that. I'm, I'm actually uh, the Senate's ex officio representative to the Transportation Commission, uh, and so I'm part of those conversations. Oh, I've you're in on that. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, now, I'm not a voting member, uh, but I, I, I'm the representative to the Senate uh, to sort of connect the, trans, the Transportation Commission to our policies, but also to, to provide feedback back to members uh, to, to apprise them of kind of where uh, things are going by way of investments uh, at the CTC. Well, uh, I don't know that you've seen the Niskanen Center report. It's really a good one, and I'm uh, I'm going to send that. And it's uh, I, I will check it out. It's really they they know these are real urban planning geeks, and I really get and I had one of them on about two years ago. So uh, anyway, there's one thing for those of you who just joined us. My guest is State Senator Josh Newman, serving at what has been known as the 29th district, but running in the newly mapped since the last state Senate election. He's running in the 37th district. So I really want to know, well, about all these things, but we're witnessing the Orange County Board of Supervisor, Andrew Doe's, appropriating over $13 million of COVID relief funds to family members without disclosing the intended recipients. They, he did not disclose that to his board. Thank goodness for Nick Gerda for breaking that. So now we all know, now all those are paying attention. So the board was deadlocked. The county board of supervisors were deadlocked on a vote to regulate this practice. What's the most appropriate way for the state to rein in the financial improprieties like this to force full disclosure to obligate clear audits? So, you know, Nick Gerda, as you, as you mentioned, has done a terrific job covering, I guess, uncovering, uh, you know, the, the actions of Supervisor Doe and his family. Uh, and so the next step is, is to insist on transparency and accountability uh, moving forward and, and, you know, and, and you know, assessing, uh, you know, so, you, you know, whatever action is necessary. And I know that the Orange County Register has, has called on him to resign. Um, so the supervisors should first, um, you know, sort of discipline themselves and, and enact policies that ensure the level of transparency that would prevent this from happening in the past. Uh, but, you know, you have to assume if it's a problem at one county, it's probably a prospective problem in others. So uh, it is certainly worth looking uh, at state-level legislation uh, to make sure that every member of every county board of supervisors, in fact, you know, other jurisdictions, uh, are, you know, are fully accountable and obligated to provide uh, reporting and transparency on these kinds of things. There's there's no excuse uh, for that kind of money being routed uh, to a family member. Well, it's 
it's certainly concerning that it's a big price tag and there is a, I mean, Supervisor Doe left the dais when his board members were considering a measure to up the ante on, you know, codifying some new, some ethics rules. And so it's sort of like, it's it's like for him, it's a nothing burger, but I think that the 30, $13 million is quite a bit for an, a sort of off the radar kind of shift of funds. Couldn't agree more. That's, and that's the $13 million we know about, thanks to Nick Gerda. That we know about, that's, right. That's, that that's we know the about. thing. And, right, and, and so it, it I, you know, a little puzzling to me that, um, you know, I, I probably understand why Supervisor Doe himself is is less than eager to, you know, move and adopt these suggested policies. But the other four members are, are absolutely obligated, I would say, uh, to take action to assure Orange County residents that their tax dollars aren't being misused in that way. So on to, speaking of, uh, well, bad faith or fraud, the Senator, State Senator Dodd, has sponsored an Elder Fraud Protection Bill 278 that would clarify that victims of financial elder abuse can continue to hold institutions, that's banks, accountable when they have should have known of the fraud but negligently assisted in the transfer anyway. What are your uh, sort of associations with advancing that the Elder Fraud Bill protection? So I, I, I've actually worked very closely with Senator Dodd over the last couple of years. He's, he's a terrific legislator. So I, I'm happy to support that bill um, and and any other policies that provide protections to not just elders, but, you know, any Californian that is uh, susceptible to malpractice uh, by financial institutions and others. So, you know, that is a is, a, is an important function uh, of state government. Uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, that Senator Dodd's bill will move forward uh, in its current state all the way to the governor's desk. And the the are is there bipartisan support so that everybody I, gets I to say there so. yeah so there's no it, headwinds yeah. in this one. Well, this is always the question, Claudia. So the real question is, you know, what does the the final piece of legislation look like? To what extent uh, is it amended or diluted uh, or watered down uh, to to you know sort of to undermine or otherwise uh, offset the intended purpose? So so this is this is the challenge. There's about seven sort of legislative steps that a bill has to go through to get all the way through the, the legislative process. And so, you know, it's important for other members to support a bill like this to make sure uh, that it does not get amended or softened uh, so that it doesn't achieve its intended purpose. So are the lending institutions circling on the floor? They, well, I, I don't Always. have any direct input inside on this, but absolutely, right? And so, so you, you know, so take payday loans, um, you know, any any number of like reverse mortgages, you know, these are very powerful lobbies. Um, and so our obligation uh, as representatives of the public is, is to make sure uh, that we're not swayed uh, in ways that would dilute the original intent to protect Californians. Well, I'm wondering if you now payday loans are a separate kind of financial um, transaction and all that, a separate demographic. But um, I'm mm-hmm. just wondering if there's there would be some kind of trading so that, okay, we'll let you deal, uh, put the onus on us to track a little bit more carefully where we see fraud, uh, the, the, you know, trans, inordinate amounts of cash being transferred that look suspect, but let up on our payday loan protections. You know, is that is that a hazard we should be thinking I, I, about? I mean, I, I, I would hope that wouldn't be the kind of horse trade. Uh, but, but, you know, it, it could. It, I, it, you know, it could, but but it's also true that most of the progress we make in, in these areas is, is incremental. And 
So, you know, you, you start out with a fairly aggressive or kind of comprehensive reform. And, and unfortunately, uh, typically it, it gets softened a little bit as it moves through uh, in order to get the votes uh, to, to move through all the policy committees and the, each of the, the legislative bodies floors on votes. So I, I would think and I would hope that on something as important as, as elder fraud that this would not happen. Uh, on payday loans, it's really hard, uh, you know, because you, you, you will have people uh, come in and say, you know, this is we're you know unbanked. This is my only access to uh, capital, to you know, to, to liquidity, right, to get from right, here to, right. to mud. Um, and you know, so that that raises a different question, which is, how do we ensure that every California has access to a trust, trusted financial institution? Uh, and so, you know, that's something we have to work on as well. Uh, if we could do that, they wouldn't be so vulnerable to petty lending. Right. And it, and it was really described very well, another piece in the L.A. Times, and then uh, an, a point that I noticed on uh, social media just in the last day or so, that the kind of way in which offshoring bank business has kind of groomed bank, uh, you know, cl- clients to we're, we're getting booted around different places and it could it's just the way fishing looks like you know you get shoved around in different places so it's it's sort of softening the client to being potentially abused by the the bad actor so that's uh, that that's a different structural issue but it's but it's all still a part of thwarting the fraud there so i i'm not sure we have much more time but for any other question than uh, well actually i can fit in two here so you are <laughs> proposing enlarging the orange mm-hmm. county board of education so i want to know how your prospects are looking for that and whether you find that that would make the board of education in orange county less gameable by a charter school agenda. So the bill, I, I have a bill, I think it's SB 907, uh, and it actually does two things. One, it, it would in, in, in expand the Orange County Board of Education from five to seven members. It's so that, that, that board uh, has been a five-member board since the early 70s, and, and since that time, Orange County's population has well more than doubled, right? So, so you're looking at uh, trustee districts that are actually quite a bit larger than, for instance, a state assembly district. And that, I would argue, is too big, especially for representatives who, who don't receive a lot of compensation, right? So they're, they're obviously doing it for different reasons, many of, many of which are ideological. The other component of the bill is, is to move the election for the Orange County Board of Education from the primary into the general. Uh, and it's, it's fairly self-evident that you get a larger turnout, uh, in a general election, and you get a much more representative turnout. And to the extent that this board makes really consequential decisions that affect schools and students and parents, uh, it seems to me kind of hard to argue that, that a more representative, more responsive board is not a good thing. And how is that looking for um, the support around uh, at the, in the state Senate and the House? So we will see. Uh, you know, the, the bill submission deadline is is actually the, the mid February, so it's 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 actually next week or a week and a half. Um, and the uh, sort of the, the one component to move the election to the general that that actually uh, Senator Aidman uh, had a bill last year. I was a co-author that failed. Uh, it failed in the the Assembly Appropriations Committee. It wasn't really clear why, other than lobbying. Um, and so I, you know, I, I'm hopeful, and I'm, I'm going to take. Uh, my very best effort at uh, lobbying my colleagues and making the argument that this is a good uh, and reasonable step. Um, and I'm, I'm actually very hopeful that we will succeed. 
So I will have an opportunity. I have one candidate that's running on the board. I've had several others on in uh, previous years, two to four, and four years ago. So it's an, an item I can uh, tap into whether they're, they're uh, advancing that representative part of the um, the legislation. So the and last- I, I would I, I would urge your listeners to, to consider, um, you know, that there's all those down ballot elections and they're 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 actually quite a bit more impact, impactful than we often realize, especially education. Right. Even if you don't have kids in schools, you have a stake in the quality of education because these are going to be ta- future taxpayers and hopefully not, uh, you know, future inmates. And so it's really important that the people who run for those offices, but who's and who serve on those bodies, uh, you know, are a good representation uh, of their constituents. So that's that's what I'm trying to do with the Orange County Board of Education. Well, I don't get to ask you any more questions, but I'm full loaded with them. I'm just going to put in a request that you can put on um, that you'll submit a ballotopedia survey so people can be uh, if they don't hear this show or after they hear the show they can see mm-hmm. more positions of yours there so i uh, thank I am you glad to do that claudia please and also do glad to come, come back anytime okay thank you for your time today senator newman my guest was state senator josh newman serving in what has been known as the 29th district but running in the newly mapped 37th district This is the first election in this district, so it includes Elisa Viejo, Anaheim, Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, Irvine, Laguna Beach, Laguna Niguel, Laguna Woods, Lake Forest, Madison, Mission Viejo, Modesca, Newport, Newport Beach, North Tustin, Orange, Santa Ana, Silverado, Tustin, and Bill. I'll be interviewing additional candidates in this race running, awaiting responses from others. Stay tuned. For my interview with Joanna Weiss running in the California 47th Congressional District. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Joanna Weiss, who is running as a Democrat in the California 47th Congressional District in the March 5th primary election. She is the founder and president of Women for American Values and Ethics, also known as WAVE. The California 47th Congressional District, I'm going to say it a bunch of times until everybody tells me stop, but it includes the cities of Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, Irvine, Newport, and Seal Beach, and portions of Laguna Beach, Laguna Hills, and Laguna Woods. With Congresswoman Katie Porter vacating the seat, it's now an open race, and all eyeballs are on the 47th, those of you who live here like we do. So, the quick, quick bio, founding partner of law offices of Joanna Joyce Weiss, she's attorney at was attorney at Latham and Watkins. She was adjunct professor at Chapman University Fowler School of Law, teaching pretrial civil procedure and public interest lawyering, and attorney at the Paul Hastings firm. She completed her bachelor's of arts in political science and government at UCLA, and her <coughs> juris doctors at the USC Gould of Law. She comes to us today from Newport Beach. We're recording this on Monday, January 29th. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Joanna Weiss. Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. Great to be back on the show. Well, as all these candidates' interviews are such a brief introduction, listeners, I'm encouraging all the candidates to stay within the questions 
kind of kind of don't like the stump talks uh, so that the voters can better gauge your potential to represent us in Congress. And without you having a record, Jonah Weiss, in elected office or serving electeds, my questions, they'll seem a bit general, but it's going to give a sense of what you're considering and you're building. So first, uh, let's get at your sort of your decision-making. Uh, I understand from the little background work, you were working on Senator Raphael Warnock's runoff campaign in Georgia in 2022 and, or no, actually it was January, 2023. So how and when after that had you decided February, 2023 on a bid to run in this particular congressional race? Well, that is um, a, a great question. I appreciate you asking that. So when uh, I worked on uh, Senator Warnock's campaign, I actually flew out to Georgia with my 16, my then 16 year old daughter. And we were proud to go out with a number of California folks, uh, particularly from Los Angeles and Orange County. And we received a grant from the Georgia Democratic Party to go out and support their canvassing efforts to get him elected. So we spent a long weekend uh, before the GO before the special elections doing uh, get out the vote GOTV canvassing. And we spent about four days on the ground and knocked hundreds of doors. And it was a great educational opportunity for my for my 16 year old, as you can imagine, uh, we were in Cobb County. Uh, my, my decision to run for office was largely based on, you know, I, I'm born and raised in Orange County and the desire to give back to the county that's given me so much. Uh, I lived here my whole life, attended Orange County Public Schools. Um, I think it wasn't in my bio, but proudly attended Saddleback Community College before heading over to UCLA and have been a student activist and an organizer here since I was 15 years old in one capacity or another. And after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, founded WAVE, uh, as you mentioned, Women for American Values and Ethics. And we had been working on making sure that we were electing leaders in Orange County that shared our values. And as a nonpartisan organization, those values were founded on being pro-choice and pro-democracy and making sure that our leaders were too. And so proud to usher in a blue Orange County from 2018, where we helped flip those four seats. Uh, including getting Katie Porter and Harley Ruta elected in that initial class, and then holding on to as many seats as we could the next couple of years, and electing leaders up and down the ballot that reflected our values. And so proud to be part of the coalition that has uh, seen the shift in Orange County go from 70% conservative-held seats locally to 55%. So we've been on the ground getting school board members elected that share our values, um, not uh, just the congressional leaders, but leaders at all levels of government. So, and so I, yes. And so when I saw Katie Porter stepping up to run for this seat, and I didn't see a candidate in the field that shared those values that I held and uh, didn't see a strong woman in the field, uh, decided to step up to run for Congress. And I know I'm the strongest candidate to defeat Scott Baugh. And that's one of the reasons um, that I feel so strongly about this and why we're you know, uh, running this campaign, it's been a, it's been a um, energizing and wonderful year, but it, but it is, it is obviously tough work, but just feel very compelled that we need to hold on the seat, keep it blue so we can take back the house in 2024. So let's hew in on the domain that is the U.S. Congress. I'm interested in knowing, Joanna Weiss, what are the legislative imperatives for you in the U.S. Congress? And then I'll ask about what committees would you prefer to serve on? But in sort of short order, what are the top things? 
Yeah. So again, there are. This, this is an election where, unfortunately, once again, democracy is on the ballot, and so this is again another one of the situations where uh, we have to treat this election like it is the election of our lifetime. And one of the primary issues that's driving me to run is making sure that we have federal protections for reproductive rights, and that is. Uh, it drives me so much because I've got a 17-year-old daughter and a 20-year-old daughter who are growing up at a time where they have fewer rights than I did when I was their age. Um, my grandmother has passed now, but when I was a teenager, she told me a story about when she had an abortion in 1940 and had to travel out of state and receive such poor care that she thought she was going to die. And the stories from my grandmother and from the women who lived in a pre-Roe world motivate me to get out there and make sure that our post-Dobbs world is changed. And the only thing that can make that happen is by taking back the House so that we can have, uh, first of all, take back the House so we can stop a national abortion ban that the Republicans have said they want to implement. But I'm going to Congress to specifically fight to have federal protections for reproductive rights so we can end this debate once and all, once and for all, and make sure that women across the United States have access to safe legal abortion and full reproductive rights. Because, as the Dobbs decision said, they're not just coming after um, abortion access. They are there are other rights um, contained in that opinion that that the Republicans want to go after, including contraception. If you uh, just yes, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, and so there are other issues that are that are incredibly important to me: climate change. Uh, I'm I'm a surfer. It's one of the reasons that Wave is named Wave. And uh, clean oceans and a healthy planet are important to me. And I know so many other folks within the 47th who want to make sure we're passing on a clean environment to our kids and our grandkids. I think it's a a moral imperative that we address the climate issue like the crisis that it is. And here in the 47th, we bear so many of the brunts of climate change from coastal erosion, rising tides, the threat of wildfire and uh, want to go to Congress to not address just the effects of climate change, but the underlying causes. But there are things that we need to do in Orange County and bring back federal funding. And so would love to bring back federal dollars to underground the electrical poles through Laguna Beach, through the Laguna Canyon Road that pose a fire threat, much like we've seen in Paradise, California and Maui. Uh, So that would be another primary initiative and making sure that we're ending offshore drilling and holding those accountable for the oil spills. Uh, those are a, a couple other uh, significant priorities that I've got. Would you like me to keep going? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to direct you into some particular areas, but first I want for listeners to know, if you just joined us, my guest is Joanna Weiss, founder and president of Women for American Values and Ethics. WAVE is the other shorthand for it. She's running as a Democrat in the California 47th Congressional District on our March 5th, five weeks away, folks, Martha. March 5th primary election. Well, so I I want to sort of take out of what you're saying about climate, and I'm going to take out what you said, too, about health care in a bit. So I'm going to ask you to really uh, tighten the answer so that we can cover everything that I think our listeners are really concerned about. But so looking at the climate aspect, so I don't know what your sensation was coming over you, but as you're seeing the completion, I know it's measure and money, but there's a lot of federal subsidies that went into expanding the adding the extra lanes in the 405 and I looked at my calendar as that whole rollout people were just 
electric about, oh, we've got new capacity here. But I it looked like 2023, at the end of the last year, that we are solving our traffic, our transit in that way. We're going to put more cars on there. So I want to know, what was your reaction to that? And we can slot in there what your thinking is about the low sand uh, corridor, the Los Angeles-San Diego-San Obispo rail corridor, which is the second busiest in uh, interrail, intercity rail in the country, that's also requiring a lot of leadership to plan and relocate that you know, that expansive bit of expensive expensive uh, bit of infrastructure. Those so those two pieces of transit to me are part of climate, and they're a federal appropriation that is involved there. So I don't, I want to know your reactions to the freeway situation, the, that rather retro fix, and what it's not just on uh, Michael, uh, Congressman Mike Levin to, to work on the Los Angeles corridor. It really does require all of the congressional delegation to be present at every time the Department of Transportation shows up at those press conferences here to support what is going to be done with that corridor that keeps washing out. Right. So let me um, you, you, uh, kind of unpack them one one at a time. Yes. So, so first of all, regarding the additional lanes on the freeway, I, you, that that is a, a really interesting point that that you're right that in in trying to alleviate the uh, traffic congestion and help working families and people who are on the road that that we are in some ways uh, encouraging more folks to be on the road and uh, rather than maybe investing in uh, higher density. Uh, transportation methods like like trains or, or or maybe encouraging people to be, have fewer cars on the on the road, um, but but I do think that it is addressing a big need there, and we have set some goals uh, to have uh, reduce our emphasis on carbon emissions and to try to move to cars that are electric. We've incentivized them in the um, nationally. There are credits that people can receive. And statewide, we've also set goals that would have us transition those cars. But, but I think one of the issues with that that doesn't get talked about enough is where are those charging stations going to be and how are we going to uh, fund them and build them up to scale in order to meet those lofty requirements that, that our um, state and federal government have set. Uh, I, I'm concerned about, as an environmental justice issue, making sure that people who live in higher density housing have access to charging stations. We have students who live in a, uh, a dorms and apartments uh, who park on the street, and we are, need to make sure that we're building the infrastructure. We've, we've widened the roads, but let's also build the infrastructure that supports uh, cars that are on alternative fuels because right now we don't have enough of it. Uh, so that's, I, I, I do think that we do need to widen the freeways for multiple reasons, but we need to make sure that we're investing in our infrastructure in other ways as well. Uh, regarding the train tracks that uh, have been decimated again by another uh, effect from our, our coastal erosion, the, the cliff that keeps falling onto the train tracks, I'm really proud of the leadership that Mike Levin and Katrina Foley and uh, have shown there. And that is an important transportation corridor where people use that, uh, not just for pleasure, that, that's not just that um, surf liner rail that people use for uh, trips. That is a transportation corridor that connects uh, business communities together. And we need to figure out a federal solution. Um, Mike Levin just announced bringing back I think it was a little more than $50 million to try to address that. 
and get those um, those train tracks relocated. And I'm very supportive of him bringing back those federal dollars to do that and look forward to bringing back a similar funds to address the district's issues uh, when, when serving in Congress. I would be so honored to uh, be elected. Thank you for that. Um, and so the, another uh, purview of the U.S. Congress, as I am going to say every chance I get, is the geopo- there's geopolitical fault lines that go right through Speaker of the House of Representatives Mike Johnson's office, right, right through his office, right this very moment. I would like to know your approach toward aid to re- Ukraine and your approach to bringing along other congressional members for supporting Ukraine. Yeah, it is an important piece of democracy of that we of, of American democracy that we support other democracies abroad, and I think that that is a leadership role that is incumbent upon the United States. And I'm very dismayed that the Republicans are playing games with democracies abroad and playing political gamesmanship with people's lives. And we have a country that has been under attack by one of our enemies. And we need to be standing with Ukraine at this time of crisis for their country and would make sure that we take back the House in 2024 because we've seen the chaos and the gamesmanship when the Republicans have that gavel. And it is so important that we put that gavel back in the hands of Hakeem Jeffries to make sure that our country is functioning, that we are passing legislation and that we are not playing political games with uh, international geopolitical issues. I want to, if we have a little time at the end, talk about the opportunity cost of all that chaos in legislating and appropriating things from the U.S. Congress. But I want to pick up with your earlier mention of establishing, codifying uh, women's access to reproductive health in all kinds. And I would like for you to expand on your positions beyond reproductive health care, what you have to say about federal support of medical insurance, affordable senior care options. We have long COVID that is opening up and hanging over all of us. And then finally, affordable pharmaceutical coverage. Right. So, um, so so glad you asked about that. Um, would like to expand kind of, a, a, as you said, about the codifying women's rights first. You know, I, I think it's a, a mistake for women in California to think that our white rights are protected here because we have a constitutional right to reproductive choice, that a national abortion ban would likely trump that right. And so a national abortion ban would affect our women here. And we've also seen how Republicans have played games with access to medication abortion uh, prescriptions. And if the Supreme Court bans one of the two drugs used in medication abortion, women in California would lack access to one of the two drugs used that make medication abortion safer and more comfortable for them. And so that's the need for even Californian women to make sure that we have federally protective reproductive rights. I also strongly feel that I don't want to live in a country, and I know many other women don't, where women are second-class citizens in some states where they have access to reproductive rights and other states where they don't. And so as a, as a Californian woman who has access to our reproductive rights here, 
we cannot leave our sisters behind in Texas and Tennessee and the states that have banned abortion. Uh, I believe we will see, as we have seen already, a decrease in uh, education rates there. We've seen an increase in rape-related pregnancies, and we cannot leave um, those people as second-class citizens within their own uh, within their own states and in our, in our country. Uh, regarding other issues that are incredibly important to me on the medical issues, uh, my dad during COVID was diagnosed with lymphoma. He and my mom are on Social Security and Medicare. He has supplemental Medicare insurance. He had to go through chemotherapy, immunotherapy, extensive surgery, and it was about a six-month course of treatment that would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars if not for his really great Medicare plan. And uh, with his supplemental Medicare plan, insurance wound up paying $50 out of pocket for all that treatment. And without it, he and my mother would have been bankrupted. And I understand from my experience through my parents and other seniors how important these programs are and commit to fighting in Congress to make sure that we are protecting Medicare from any cuts and also protecting Social Security. That, to me, is a contract between America and its workers, and we need to make sure that Social Security is funded and develop programs to make sure that it's not around just for today's workers, but for tomorrow's generation as well. And yes, and the other and, sectors I was mentioning. Yeah. So um, regarding long, uh, long COVID, I think that we, we need to make sure that we are uh, addressing that as a, as a crisis that it has become. And it, at times, you know, we, we may need to, to study it and provide certain funding for it as well. Another spot where I really think it's important is uh I am not accepting corporate PAC money. It is something that I feel strongly about and have rejected any donations from Big Pharma and other types of companies, including oil and gas executives. And I'm doing this because I believe that I cannot go to Congress and negotiate prescription drug prices if I'm taking money from Big Pharma or from the large pharmaceutical companies and have made the pledge to not accept the corporate PAC donations now, and I never will accept those. And um, I, I think that's an important distinction between myself and my primary opponent, um, that, that I have not ever accepted those and will not accept those donations. And I think that's the only way to make sure that my constituents know that I'm always going to be fighting for them and putting their interests first. What measures, Joanna Weiss, would you deem necessary to handle the next possibly more lethal pandemic? That is a, um, that is a tough question that I think what I would rely upon is the CDC to, and, and making sure again, why we have got to have Democrats in control to make sure that we are fully funding the uh, very agencies that we trust to get us through those times of crisis. And, uh, would look to the CDC for their guidance in, in how to handle the next pandemic, but we need to make sure that we have, uh, one of the things that happened with COVID we found was that we were not prepared with PPE. We were not prepared um, with hospital staffing levels. And I don't think that we've really returned to those, to those levels um, that we had before. So we need to make sure that we have that infrastructure in place that can take it on if it, if it would happen. But I really think we need to be following the CDC's guidance and uh, recommendations 
on how to prepare for, uh, unfortunately, probably an, another pandemic. Um, but it, it's been important to trust our scientists and take their uh, take their advice to heart. It takes money, though, to strengthen CDC so it can be on message, it can yeah. be certifiably clear, and the science is consistently conveyed. I think we have local epidemiologists that were shaking their finger, they, a fist, they were shaking it all at CDC. So it, if you're hollowing out a federal agency from underfunding it from congressional appropriations, then we're back where we started in the late 2019, early 2020. Exactly, exactly. And this is, you know, the Republicans are trying to do this at, with all of our institutions. Um, it's not just the uh, CDC and the National Institutes of Health. They're trying to dismantle the Department of Education from within. They've tried to dismantle the EPA from within. And this, again, is part of that chaos that the Republicans sow when they're in power and why it is so important that we take back the House in 2024, um, which starts with, as you mentioned at the top of the show, keeping the seat blue and that all paths um, to taking back the House uh, are incumbent upon making sure that we hold the seat. So I do, I'm going to take a moment then to, to bring up when you're out campaigning or, or, you know, the armchair, even you can get a good look at the pernicious kind of activities, the pernicious enterprise of chaos being stoked to flood people, disorient people, overwhelm, misinform, disinform. And that can have some pretty bad consequences in terms of people participating in electoral politics, that's the voter part, as well as you getting, any candidate getting their actual message out without it being undermined by a defakes. Are you encountering people that are struggling with that? And this is only the end of January. You know, this is, I, I think, a, a great question um, to look at at the, the national scale. We learned in 2018 how much misinformation, in 2016, how much misinformation and disinformation was being sown across the country, and particularly from international players um, in a really, really inappropriate way, um, trying to influence our, our elections. Um, in this race, and as far as the 47th this year, I have not seen that yet in our, in our um, race. I think that we need to make sure that voters are turning out. I think the early primary, the Super Tuesday primary, is only the second time that we've had a March primary in California. And I think more than disinformation being promulgated, the problem is people are not yet aware that there is an election here uh, happening in five weeks. And so one of the things that we're out there on the doors about is letting people know there's an election happening soon, that ballots are dropping uh, starting February 5th, and that there is an election March 5th. Well, I think we have evidence that disinformation is well underway in this election cycle with people that have kind of sizable influencer accounts and they're saying, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to even vote this time. I think this this is exactly the kind of, that is chaos to me and it's yeah. keeping me up. So I, I, I'm not sure it's wait, we're waiting. I think it's here. But okay. where can people see you at upcoming public forums? And will you be completing the Ballotpedia questionnaire? Yeah, so we have um, actually even this afternoon, we have an Instagram Live where people can participate. And we will be doing more Instagram Lives and Teletown Halls over the next couple of weeks. 
uh, we have a coffee with the candidate next Sunday. Uh, I believe that one will be in Huntington Beach. And uh, we can, or excuse me, uh, voters can go to JoannaWeissForCongress.com and learn more information and sign up to receive our newsletter for further updates or just follow us on social media and would love to have them follow us so they can learn about additional events uh, and they can come, come meet me there. So any closing comment? Yeah, just, um, yeah, so I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. I know uh, many of the, the viewers are, are Democrats, no party preference voters, moderate Republicans who are looking for a candidate that, that shares their values and would be honored to be considered, um, encourage them to find out more about my race. And I think one of the things we're trying to do is make sure that we have the strongest candidate who can defeat Scott Baugh next November. And we need a candidate who can lead with integrity, who can be trusted. And I, I am that candidate. And I look forward to uh, meeting some more of the voters out in the public at some of our events or when I'm knocking on their doors and they're getting to meet me on their own doorstep. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time, Joanna Weiss. Thank you so much, Claudia. Great to be back on with you and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. My guest was Joanna Weiss, founder and president of Women for American Values and Ethics, who's running as a Democrat in the California 47th Congressional District in the March 5th primary. The district includes Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, Irvine, Newport, and Seal Beach, and portions of Laguna Beach, Laguna Hills, and Laguna Woods. The district is currently represented by Congresswoman Katie Porter. Vote by mail ballots are about to appear in our mailboxes. And I'm continuing to book candidates for this and other races. Coverage continues right through March 5th. That's my wrap next week. My guests will be two more candidates running for the California State Senate District 37, Alex Mohajer and Guy Selig. Policy questions you'd like me to ask them? Email me, cshamba at kuci.org. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.